You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Gators Breakdown, the Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. Join me this episode after a week off as co-host Will Miles from his site readandreaction.com, and you can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. Well, SEC Media Days last week, fall camp coming up really soon. Uh, it's uh, it's football time. Oh man, we're getting there. I was they had the uh, they had the Florida LSU game from 2016 on the SEC Network this weekend, and uh, I tuned in right before the uh, stop of Geis on the goal line, and then had to turn it off real quick before before the post game <laughs> news conference where they had McElwain getting interviewed. But uh, it's good that those games are starting to show up on the SEC Network again. That we're starting to see, uh, you know, it's coming. It's coming down the road, and and uh, it's it's a welcome uh, it's a welcome thing after the off season. Feels like it gets longer every year. Yeah, you know, they do call it SEC Media Days last week. We had the episode on with uh, Will Salmon, of course. But, you know, talking season and kind of when you get around uh, different media members and, and such and, and the fans that were around there, uh, you know, that's kind of that event kind of kicks everything off. And, and it's, it's a fun event uh, as well, being around there. And you know, we'll get into it uh, as well as far as the uh, predicted order of finish from the media. But you know, once you hit that SEC Media Days, it kind of is uh, football from here on out for, hey, until uh, January. Well, especially now that you got the media passes and you're meeting with all the big guys now, Dave. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, <laughs> it, it it was really fun to see to hear some of the some of the perspectives from some of the players. And I encourage people who didn't didn't listen to last week's episode to to go take a listen, just because you get to hear Felipe Franks talk a little bit and P Ryan and and some of the other guys who were there, and then also Mullen and and what he expects to see in the season. Really, sort of a lot of the talk that we've had this off season about you know Franks and turning the turning the corner of those last four games, and you got to sort of hear both Mullen and Franks' perspective on that. So that was really interesting. Yeah, you could tell I was driving my narrative too of uh, of P. Ryan becoming the work- workhorse running back. <laughs> hey, man, you, you had people pointing out that they could hear you on Mullen's press conference and all sorts. Oh, yeah. Of so, you know, it's uh, it's good that you're getting that you're integrating your way into the into the into the media there, and uh, you know, it's a good opportunity for Gators Breakdown to sort of spread its wings. Yeah, I mean, uh, I did kind of tweet that last week, and uh, I, I look, I know the podcast is big and and, and growing and stuff, but uh, for it to be recognized by, I mean, Matt Wyatt, you know, we've had him on. He's, he's the radio guy from Mississippi State. 
I've had him on talking about Mullen and, and staff, of course. And he he was talking to me like I was his best friend, you know. And it's kind of kind of cool there, you know, to to, to be recognized for, for how much the podcast was growing and, and hearing people's uh, kudos and uh, and, and the like. There it was it, it was kind of neat to see, and you know, hopefully uh, Gators Breakdown continues to grow there and us uh, all apart. And, and thanks to you listeners uh, out there. But uh, hey, on this episode, we're going to take a look at the uh, media predicted order of finish from SEC Media Days and the, the all SEC selections and get you ready for the start of fall camp. Before we start, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes as well as articles from the News for Jack sports team. Catch the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, and Spotify. And using those services, please share, rate, and review the show. Almost 300 uh, ratings uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts. So um, almost almost at that mark. And also follow us on social media. Follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. And don't forget, August 17th, kickoff party here in Jacksonville at the Red Gill Bistro. Uh, Gators Breakdown listener James Carlin giving us a hookup uh, on a great location here in Jacksonville. I know many of you have already RSVP'd uh, to the uh, invitation I sent out on uh, Twitter. Uh, So August 17th, a week before Florida and Miami kicked the season off, free admission. Uh, I have to pay for food and drinks there, but uh, I'll put a RSVP out on Twitter again. If you don't have Twitter, reach out to me at GatorsBreakdown at gmail.com and let me know if you want to go. Well, I know you've told me you want to go. But uh, you'll be in Gainesville probably a week after that, uh, after uh, you know around, around Miami game time. But uh, you know, I wish you could make it, but it should be a fun time uh, August seventeenth. Yeah, man, you'll have to beam me in via satellite or something <laughs> to talk, talk to people who've come out. I mean, certainly we appreciate anybody who comes out to support support you and support the podcast. I mean, I, I think people recognize sort of the the kind of person you are just from listening to the podcast and you know it's all it's all the same the minute you hang up uh the minute the minute we go off air it's the exact same person so everybody's gonna have a fun time meeting you and certainly i hope i can get there next year even though i can't make it this year absolutely we'll have to make this uh uh, annual occurrence there so at the end of last week will uh media in attendance at sec media days predicted alabama as the 2019 SEC champion over Georgia uh, in a rematch of last year's SEC championship game too, of course, Alabama received 203 votes to be crowned the SEC champion while Georgia was second with 49 votes. No surprise. Uh, Georgia was selected to win the SEC East with 1,789 points, including 233 first place votes while Florida was second with 1,499 points and 21 votes to win the SEC East. Missouri was third, uh, and they kind of they they uh, they give a points by you know if if you're predicted to finish first, you get seven points, second six points uh, in there. So it's kind of seven six five four three two one scale uh, there for how they determine uh, when when we make our selections there. Uh, as I said, no surprise, Alabama picked to win the SEC West. Uh, LSU was second, uh, and about four hundred total points uh, difference there. Um, and then Alabama received 253 first-place votes in the SEC West. Texas A&M was third behind Alabama and LSU with 1,268 points. Uh, Alabama set a new record, and we'll, we'll get to this. Twelve members selected to the first team all SEC was Alabama. Previous record was 10, held by, guess who? Alabama in 2017. <laughs> so let's run down the uh, media predicted 2019 finish. Uh, we'll go, keep going there. As I mentioned, in the East, Georgia, Florida, Missouri, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Vanderbilt. 
And in the West, Alabama, LSU, Texas A&M, Auburn, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, and Arkansas. The media only seven times since 1992 has predicted the uh, SEC champion at SEC Media Days there. So that was including last season. Will, it really comes as no surprise. This was how the predicted order of finish came out. Not much drama going into the season as we pretty much knew it was going to be Georgia and then Florida in the East, Alabama and then LSU in the West, and then ultimately Bama over Georgia for the SEC crown. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty chalk in terms of what we might have expected. The, the the real surprises come with, like, the single votes. I mean, who in the world looked at South Carolina's schedule <laughs> and said, yeah, those guys are winning the SEC? And then Tennessee, come on. Like, I think they're going to be better than last year, but Tennessee, really? Like, you got them over Georgia, Florida, Missouri? Yeah, I don't know about that. And then Mississippi State, I think somebody voted them. It must have been Moorhead's mother or something. Is <laughs> It's in the SEC media. Cause, I, didn't cause see I, I, didn't, I didn't see her there. That ain't, that ain't happening either. So, no, nah, I mean, whatever, man. This is this is all good fun. Um, yeah. Obviously, I think Alabama's the prohibitive favorite in the West. I think Georgia's the prohibitive favorite in the East. The question, as always, is going to be, you know, can can any of those teams overtake them? And that's part of the fun is that you get to, you get the opportunity to do that. I would say it's probably the gap between Alabama and the rest of the West is probably larger than the gap between Georgia and the rest of the East. You know, there are some possibilities that that Georgia might slip up, and certainly they've slipped up a few times the last couple of years, and so that opportunity still exists. Whereas Saban's pretty much been a machine for for more than a decade at this point. Where you know, if you're if you're gonna if you're going to beat Alabama in the West, you're going to do it by you know not having any losses in the SEC, and you're going to beat them. So uh, you know you you, ha- you don't haven't necessarily had to do that to beat Georgia, um, though it's coming. Georgia Georgia's about Georgia's pretty close to where Alabama is, not quite close enough. You know the the fourth <laughs> the fourth down fake field goals and the fourth and what twenty third twenty three and things like that. But I mean they've been pretty close to Alabama over the last couple of years. And they're clearly the class of the SEC. It's clearly those are the teams that everybody's sort of trying to climb the mountain to overtake. And and so I don't think it's any surprise that this is what the predictions are. Yep. Uh, I'll throw my prediction in here uh, of what the way I submitted it here. Of course, I'll, I'll start in the West here, Alabama, LSU. I had Auburn third over Texas A&M. I think Texas A&M lost to just a little bit too much, too many important parts from last year's team, but you could really flip flop Auburn, Texas A&M and, you know, feel fine either way. One thing they don't take into account, Will, is our, our kind of ties that happen and kind of like a round-robin three-way tie in, in around with some teams. So you, know, you can't really label it that way, so you do have to pick and choose one through seven. So I had Alabama, LSU, Auburn, Texas A&M, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Arkansas. It was pretty much the same uh, except what the with what the rest of the media had, except I had Auburn higher. And in the East, I did have uh, – I did select Georgia – uh, number one uh, in, in the East, Florida second. I have Missouri third, Kentucky fourth, South Carolina five, Tennessee six, Vanderbilt seven. I do think Tennessee will also be a better team, but uh, SEC East I think is getting a little tougher uh, out there in South Carolina's schedule. I do think I do think you could probably shake Missouri, Kentucky, South Carolina, and I'll probably throw Tennessee in there as well. Throw them in a hat, pick them out. And it probably plays out, you know, three, four, five, six. There, I think those teams are going to be really close. Like I said, may have some ties in there. You know, I really think Missouri, Kentucky, and South Carolina are really even. South Carolina's schedule is just brutal. The reason I had, I kind of pegged them down a little bit. I do think they are better than Kentucky, but I pegged them down just because of that schedule. And Will Muschamp can't beat Kentucky, so uh, a problem there. <laughs> so, uh, and then I did pick Alabama over Georgia, of course, in the SEC. 
championship. Yeah, I think I think there's more, you know, you sort of mentioned shaking people up in the East, and, and I think there's more variability there. I think Missouri is going to be worse than people think. I mean, the SEC media had them third. I don't think Kelly Bryant's really all that great. I think he's sort of a game manager, and you put a game manager in an offense that hummed last year with, with Drew Locke, but, you know, obviously Locke was a really good player the last couple of years, and if Bryant can't put up those same type of numbers, I'm not sure they have the horses on defense to hold up. I think South Carolina is probably lower than four mainly because of the schedule. I mean, it's it's just a brutal schedule, and it's brutal early on, too. It's one of those things where they're going to get beat up, and they're going to be losing, and you wonder whether they lose confidence. And, you know, we've seen Muschamp have a season spiral before, so it's not as if you might not see the same thing this year, especially if something happens to their starting quarterback. And then I think Kentucky's probably going to be better than what most people think. I mean, they lost the running back, Benny Snell. They lost a lot on defense. But, you know, the infrastructure has been built up there over – over a five or six year period now under Stoops. And I do think there's probably still a lot there, especially if Wilson can take a step forward at quarterback. And, you know, he played a lot last year and got a lot of experience and certainly made Florida look kind of silly at times on the field. So, I mean, I think if I was going to do it, I think, I think you're looking Georgia, Florida, I'd have Kentucky up at third, probably Tennessee at fourth, mainly because I think Missouri is going to be worse at fifth. And I think South Carolina then and Vanderbilt sort of round out the round out the East and then the West. I mean, Alabama is obviously number one. And then you're really debating between LSU, Texas A&M and Auburn. It's interesting that if Auburn finishes fourth, I'm not sure Malzahn makes it in the next year. So, Mm. um, you know, there is some incentive for them to be second. So I think, you know, again, I think, their defense has been very, very good the last couple of years. Stidham isn't exactly the guy that you'd think that Malzahn would want a quarterback. So I do wonder how they're going to play with, with a new quarterback in there. I am a big Burrow guy, so I probably have LSU second, um, Auburn third, A&M fourth. I'd say Old Miss over Mississippi State. I'm just not a Moorhead fan. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think the offense at Old Miss has been very, very good the last few years. If the defense can start to improve even a little bit. And they got I, Rich Rod this year as OC. <laughs> if nothing else, it'll be fun. So yeah, Rich Rod and Matt Corral. That's a that's a pairing for you. Well, you know. I uh <laughs> the good news is is that the SEC media is never is never right. So no matter what we say, we're pretty much on par with them. That seven <laughs> times since nineteen ninety two. Like that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually so I think it's gonna be Alabama, Georgia, and the SEC team. So they get for picking Tennessee all those all those years. <laughs> Oh man! So yeah, I got Alabama, Georgia in the SEC championship game. I've got Georgia winning the SEC. Ah, yep. Uh, you and I talk behind the scenes, and you're really high on Georgia. I'm I'm really high on LSU uh, too, by the way. Um, but uh, you know, it doesn't mean Florida's not good either. Yeah, I was just I, I'm high. I, I really do think it's it's Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and Florida are almost neck and neck right there behind those two teams. Um, there. So while Bama and Georgia are the overwhelming favorites, Will, Will, you kind of alluded to this, you know, there are a few in the media that believe Florida has a a better chance at winning their division than LSU does winning the West. Uh, Florida garnered 21 votes to win the East, while LSU received five votes to win the West. Uh, After spending a a few days with with fellow media there in in Birmingham or Hoover, that's another thing, by the way, separate topic. Is it Birmingham or Hoover? Like the address to the hotel where we're at says Birmingham. Everything else says Hoover. I'm confused when I'm, when I'm there. It's uh, it's just a minor quip. These are first world problems you got. It is. <laughs> well, I mean, so we're at we're you know, I, I work for the TV station Channel Four, so I did some you know live shots and stuff uh, with Cole Pepper, the News for Jack sports anchor, and you know every time we we signed out, it was. Are we in? Are we in? Now I'm mixing them up. Boomer. Are we in Hoover or Birmingham? You know, it's so it's. Uh, I think either are acceptable there. So, 
Oh yeah, I mean, I, I see that's what you should do. You should just call it Boomer and 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 move on. But. <laughs> All right, back on topic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, never mind. That was just something last week that kind of got on my nerves. But anyway, you know, after spending a few days with uh, media there in Boomer, uh, it was asked and discussed uh, a lot of uh, how close Florida is to Georgia. And if you look on the surface here, it certainly can be said that more believe Florida has a better chance at winning the East than LSU does the West. And uh, and, and I think the biggest questions you know I, I was there monday and tuesday the days florida and georgia were there and it was the questions was how close is florida to georgia but georgia's and the georgia media was how and the national media covering georgia was how close is georgia to alabama so it was kind of the the, the neat chain reaction there uh there so you know i really don't know if it's all that surprising given bama's dominance and, and the dominance over the rest of the west particularly lsu uh will but uh it is interesting that the you know, Florida garnered 21 votes, and and, and the, the, those people see uh, that Florida has a chance of kind of surpassing Georgia uh, for this year. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously more people thought Florida could win the SEC than uh, than anybody thought that people in the West could win the SEC West, and I think that's a function of Alabama's strength. I also mm-hmm. think it's sort of a function of the strength of the West in general, right? That that people think LSU, Texas A&M, Auburn, and Mississippi State are probably better teams than the next four in the East. If you look at Florida, Missouri, South Carolina, Tennessee, or the four they have there, that you know Georgia, Florida, and Missouri are probably pretty good teams, but then when you get down to South Carolina, Tennessee, and Kentucky, the, mm-hmm. the expectation is those are weaker teams than the four, five, and six in the West. The other thing is I think it's an acknowledgement that Fromm needs to stay healthy. Yep. That, that there is not a whole lot behind Fromm at Georgia if he gets hurt. I mean, we're talking two-star guys who are the, who are the backups there now. And so they – you know, they lean heavily on their quarterback to make the right decisions, get them in the right running play, all those sorts of things. And you can beat a Vanderbilt with your backup quarterback. You can beat, you know, maybe even a South Carolina with your backup quarterback. But can you beat Florida with your backup quarterback? And, you know, if he takes one shot in the blind side and isn't there for a big game because, you know, God forbid, I don't want him to get injured. I want to beat Georgia when they're full strength. But, you know, that's the reality. It's one of the reasons why we harp so so highly on on depth and recruiting is that and having a quarterback in each class. And so, you know, the departure of Justin Fields really leaves them in a situation where they don't have a guy who's a high pedigree to put in there if something happens to Fromm. And I think that's probably why there's some people picking Florida, that you just look at the depth and say all it takes is one shot. All it takes is one sort of, you know, right, you know, a sprained ankle right before the game against Florida. And he comes in and he's hampered and he can't push off and he throws a couple of ducks. They get picked off because they can't rely on a backup. They have to play him, even though he's not 100 percent. Those sorts of things are the types of things that happen to every team every year. And, you know, Georgia, Fromm especially, has been healthy throughout his career there. And you hope that continues because you want to beat them when they're full strength. But, you know, at some point, some everybody deals with injuries. And if Georgia deals with injuries at the wrong places, that can really lead to giving a team like Florida the opportunity to step in. All right, then we'll take now the media also submitted their selections for all SEC players, and you'll kind of see that kind of lends itself to the way these teams were ranked, Will, in the predicted order of finish here. UF, uh, two first-team members uh, were senior defensive lineman Jabari Zuniga and, uh, and junior defensive back C.J. Henderson. Uh, I did have – I voted both of those guys first team there, so matched up uh, while running back LaMichael Piran, linebacker David Reese II, punter Tommy Townsend, and Will, Kadarius Tony, as all purpose, were named to the second team, all SEC, 
and then receiving third team all SEC recognition is kicker Evan McPherson, and it rounds out uh, that's the uh, selection there. Seven Gators in total, Will, and uh, you can't really you know can't really fault uh, any of those guys being named. I know some out there maybe thought that uh, more Gators, maybe Van Jefferson for one, uh, should have been on that list uh, there. But I, I, with, with the way it voted, uh, I, I don't think, uh, and the way it came out, I don't think there's much to be disappointed about. No, I mean, I think it's something that you want to, obviously, it's going to be motivation for the guys who got left off. I, I think Florida spread the ball out a lot last year mm-hmm. to their different wide receivers. So you look at it and say as a whole – most, I think most pundits have Florida's wide receiver grouping ranked very, very high, just behind Alabama, usually, yeah. as we can see. But they put every one of Alabama's wide receivers on the, on the all SEC team, and none of Florida's made it except for Tony as an all purpose guy. So, um, you know, I, I think they should probably use this as a slight. They should use it for motivation. I am a little bit surprised that um, that they're not on the third team. I mean, you look at mm-hmm. Justin Jefferson for LSU. I mean, I think that's sort of a reflection of them thinking that he's going to be the go-to guy for Burrow. But I also think that when you look at the last few games for Franks, it was pretty clear that Van Jefferson and Trevon Grimes were the mm-hmm. go-to guys on offense there. And they're the guys who are going to get the shots deep and, and that sort of stuff. So um, it would not surprise me at the end of the year if we're looking up and saying that one of those guys is somebody who's made the the all SEC first, not maybe even the first team, but certainly the all SEC first, second, or third team. So uh, wide receiver is the area where I'd look at and say, yeah, that's probably a place where you could make an argument that Florida should have more. Yeah, I did have uh, I had I did peg Lamarco Piranas as the fourth best running back in the SEC. I had Keyshawn Vaughn from Vanderbilt number one. You average eight yards a carry. With the talent that's around you at Vanderbilt, I think that's uh, I think that's a statement in and of itself. And we saw firsthand how good he can be and how important he is to that Vanderbilt offense uh, there. And they had Najee Harris, DeAndre Swift ahead of Michael Piran uh, there. And uh, I don't know how this went through, and because I wouldn't have done it, but I had, but I had Jerry Judy, Devontae Smith, Henry Ruggs, all Alabama guys. One, two, three. <laughs> so you know I, I could play along there too uh, as the fourth wide receiver. I must have misplaced this somehow. Hit the wrong button. Had Stephen Goodry from Mississippi State. Is no way I would have had him fourth. So <laughs> I don't know. I didn't have Ben Jefferson either. But uh, um, but mostly, will it's not it's not a slight on him as too much as you said. Florida spreads the ball around so much that is yes, he's a number one, but he's not the number one that a lot of these other teams have. Where you know the stats um, are, are kind of backing that up. Um, as well, we could skip offensive line, of course, and no Gators until some experiences out there that are, are going to be placed on that. I did place Javari Zaniga second on the, the defensive line, only behind Rokon Davis from Alabama. Uh, went the linebacker had David Reese up there in the, in the top six defensive back. A little bit of a bias here, but I had did have C.J. Henderson at one, Grit Delp at two, Christian Fulton third. Patrick Sertain from Alabama fourth. And I placed Marco Wilson there at five just based off of uh, his freshman season. I think what we can expect from him if he's able to bounce back from that injury was all, you know, all SEC uh, freshmen uh, after his freshman season there two years ago uh, was, will we look at a year ago going into the season? He's actually thought of more highly than CJ Henderson going into last year before he gets injured. So I think that's why I had no problem putting Marco Wilson there. Yeah, as long as he you know can bounce back from injury there. I did have Evan McPherson uh, and Rod- Rodrigo Blankenship from Georgia as the two place kickers. Uh, Tommy Townsend at punter. And, Will, I did put Kadarius Tony as the number one all-purpose guy there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that really sort of encompasses what we hope he is this year. I mean, last year it was um, – I'm not sure you would call him all-purpose. He was just a wide receiver. Yeah. 
we'll see we'll see if he can fill that role of more of an all-purpose guy. I cert I don't I certainly don't think they gave him the number one just to have him go out there and return kickoffs. So um, I, I expect that we'll see quite a bit from him. Um, your point about Wilson, I think, is a really good one. That really it, it's hard to ascertain where he will be in terms of his recovery until you actually see him out on the field. So I can understand why people would be hesitant to put him on the team, but certainly if he can play, play up to his play up to the level from a couple of years ago, that's uh, you know, that's certainly a solid pick. And then one thing I think is really interesting is there are no Tennessee Vols anywhere to be found within the entire three teams, offense or defense. I didn't get a chance to look at the actual specialists, but there is not one vol that I saw on the offense or defensive teams, which really says something about what people think of that program, considering they've, they've actually recruited pretty decently for the entire. Yeah, they do have Marquez Callaway, the receiver, but they have him as a return specialist. Yeah, so they have a return man, and that's it in terms of people who are on the, the first, second, or third team SEC. That's really an indictment of, of the player development and the coaching staff before because, again, the recruiting has not been terrible there at Tennessee. It's been better than – it's certainly been better than Vanderbilt, who has a bunch of guys on there, So and Missouri as well. So, um, you know, recruiting isn't the be-all, end-all. Obviously, to win championships, we think you gotta got to recruit at a high level, but it says something about the staff there in, uh, in Knoxville and anybody complaining about – you know their inability to get elite players and things like that this is it was something that really surprised me when i looked back and said geez there's not one guy from tennessee on this on you know on the three deep yeah before before you go further with that you just mentioned vanderbilt there second team offense Keshawn vaughn running back uh kalia lipscomb wide receiver and jared pinkney at tight end they have three second team guys on the on offense and they're skill players yeah i mean so vanderbilt is a maybe I shouldn't have picked them last in the East. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a plucky team. I don't know that they ever and and I think one of the things you can see when you look at these SEC teams is just the um is the depth of the different programs, right? Yeah. That that you look at the waves of the Florida or the waves of the Alabama guys who come. I mean, it's just you, you and I were talking before we came on air. It's like, is there any position where they don't have one? And there's one offensive lineman and two defensive line positions that they don't have somebody in the top three teams. Other than that, the whole thing's pretty much filled out. George is not quite to that extreme, but certainly is getting there. And then you drop down to sort of the next tier where you've got Florida and 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 some and Auburn, other Auburn, yeah, Florida, Auburn, LSU, kind of all grouped there. Yeah, and I think that's reflective in terms of, I mean, A, it kind of reflects how these teams have recruited except for Tennessee, but it also reflects how people think those teams are going to finish. And, and you know, unless you have a transcendent quarterback, so, you know, Franks goes out and just plays, outplays from throughout the year, I think everybody else on the Florida roster gets rewarded for that. Same thing with Burrow. If Burrow comes out and plays lights out, everybody on LSU's roster on the offensive side of the ball is going to get rewarded for that. But, you know, I'm I'm a little bit. Uh, it is interesting that just about every skill player on Alabama's team is on is on one of the first three teams, and most of them are on the first team. They got yeah. two wide receivers, and then Najee Davis at running back there on that first team, along with Tua. So, um, a lot of people expecting some fireworks down in uh, Tuscaloosa. Yeah, I had no problem putting their, the top three receivers in the SEC all from Alabama because I mean that's just you know with the production you get from Tua and you know and, and throwing the throwing the deep ball and kind of the the freelancing that he can do to get receivers open as well. Um, I, I think they proved enough last year to, to kind of uh, vote that way. So I put out on Twitter yesterday um, that the Gators were picked by the media to finish second in the SEC East behind Georgia, agree or disagree. Uh, and any Gators get snubbed for all SEC. So um, 
Out of 1,132 votes, 58% said the Gators should be second, and 42% says the media got it wrong, Will. So uh, let's read a few of um, a few comments here left by our listeners. Scott Sweat says, I think in fairness, the media got it right from what we have to go on, but I also think the jump in year two will surprise a lot of people, and we can win the East. I prefer they sleep on us, though, and we use that as motivation. Uh, Allie Pete Wilbur, Eric Wilbur's wife yeah, here, says, I actually think Florida wins the East this year and loses to Alabama and Atlanta, but if I were voting, I don't know how you justify putting Florida above Georgia until it's proven on the field. Will the fan in me kind of thinks the, the, the same way. It hurts when I have to put Georgia and peg Georgia as number one in the East. But, I mean, you kind of have to uh, at this point with you know, the last two matchups. Yes, last year was close, uh, you know, going into the fourth quarter, close games. Uh, but everything we kind of know going into the season, uh, Georgia's their biggest question mark right now, uh, wide receiver uh, there and, and some running back depth behind Swift. Uh, a lot of talent there. A lot of talent we think will will show up, but still a lot to prove behind uh, DeAndre Swift there. As you mentioned, quarterback depth behind Fromm if something wants to happen to him. Uh, but, uh, you know, r- r- right now, uh, the, a lot of the fan base has no problem with what we know far to being pegged second. Yeah, I mean, it really boils down to Fromm, right? I mean, the last two years, he's completed something like 67% of his passes. His yards above replacement that I calculate based on his throwing and running has him up around one, which is like a borderline Heisman candidate. It's not quite – the Heisman winners usually are somewhere between 1.7 and 3. So he's lower than that. He's not not necessarily a Heisman-level guy, but he's really a a good to elite quarterback. And if he takes a leap, then Georgia obviously becomes a lot better and a lot more potent. But – you know, you've got somebody coming back for the third straight year in a row with his pedigree and and how he's played thus far. It's hard to pick against a team like that, especially with all the talent around him. I mean, you know, if you had Florida's roster with a three-year starter who's put up numbers like Fromm, you'd say absolutely. Like that's a team that you think can go win the SEC. And those are the sorts, those are the types of teams that have taken down Alabama over the years. You know, you get an Auburn team with a lot of talent, but nowhere near as much talent as as Alabama. But you got Cam Newton on the team and all of a sudden they're able to do that right or or you look at the east and and some of those teams that have been able to take down um or at least compete with some of the big boys when they've got elite quarterbacks and and um you know so Fromm is one of those guys right he's one of those guys who sort of fits in that category i think you can make an argument as to whether he's just very good or whether he's elite but you know very good with that level of talent is still a really formidable opponent and you know they're gonna have to be some injuries likely and there's gonna have to be some attrition and maybe Fromm plays a little bit worse than he did last year and you know georgia's changed offensive coordinators and maybe that makes a difference so there's a lot of things that can happen certainly it's not a it's not a perfect um it's not perfect to predict these things but you know and like if left tackle gets pulls a hamstring or something and all of a sudden you can't protect his backside so there's all those sorts of things that could happen but we're talking about most likely scenarios and the most likely scenario is from plays about like he did last year and the offensive players around him who were young last year start to get better and uh and and george's you know, it makes sense that they're predicted to win that, but um, obviously that's why you play the games, and it's still exciting because I think when Florida plays Georgia, those teams are it's going to be one of those games, just like last year, where it's for the East. And in, if that's the case, then you know you're really talking a 60-40 or a 70-30 proposition, and even a 70-30 proposition means 30% of the time Florida comes out on top, and you know at that point you you play the game of your life and see what you can do. Yeah, I've said numerous times when discussing my picks, and I, I threw it out on Twitter. I want nothing more than to be wrong. So. 
<laughs> well, no, Dave, you're you're going to have to take your medicine because, as as I learned last year, when you pick against Florida, all of a sudden you are no longer a real fan. So, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you look at it, you try to make the best assessment you can, you try to be honest with people in terms of what you see, and and sometimes you're wrong, and the Florida fans let us know, and that's fun too. Absolutely. Uh, Kevin Harris says um, he's surprised Van Jefferson didn't make the list. Uh, we kind of alluded to that earlier. And, and Marco continues to be forgotten about, too. So, as I said, I put him on my list, but I can understand why people were kind of scared putting Marco Wilson there coming off the injury. Um, let's see here. Doug Bailey says, even if the offensive line had the exact same success as last year, no, imp- uh, no, no improvement. Our wide receiver and running back room is stacked. Adding in Frank's building off the last four games of last season – and it's a dominant situation. Media giving too much credit to Fromm from for having a strong run game. I don't know. To me, Fromm's proven uh, enough times he can, uh, you know, he 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 can make big time throws. I think there's besides Trevor Lawrence, the last two years a quarterback hasn't played as well uh, versus Alabama as Jake Fromm has. And um, I don't know. I I, I think it's uh, I think he's a pretty good quarterback there. And I have no problem with him being pegged second the best second best quarterback in the SEC. Will. Uh, and the bow tie is pretty stylish. So, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it, it. Florida fans rightly look at the last four games and say Frank's took a step forward, but in those four games, he probably played about as well as Fromm did throughout the last two years. Yeah. So, you know, really, what you're you're counting on that development and that progression holding for an entire year, and Georgia can sit there and say, "Hey, we've already seen that guy the last couple of years," and so. Go ahead. And I think if you look at it, honestly, you say Georgia has more talent around from than Florida does around Franks. And that's, you know, that doesn't, it's not a comment on, on those players in general and their abilities. It's a comment on just sort of generally, there's probably more depth at the Georgia on the Georgia roster and they could probably sustain more injuries than Florida can except at some key positions. So again, I, I think, um, you know, th- there's a percentage chance that Florida is able to take, take that, take that game but if if you're asking me to bet in vegas on it and you're giving me even odds uh, i'm gonna go with the bulldogs yep uh mullinera says he's not a snub per se but he's been out of commission a while but bernard is the guy no one talks about that could end up all sec dude can ball but yeah i mean i like that a lot this list of all sec players is not going to be right by the time you're years in either this there's a lot more fluidity in, in that of course uh, when, when it's all said and done. And, yeah, you could have a player uh, like Grenard show up like Ja'Kai Polite did similarly last year. He was not on any preseason all-SEC list, uh, Jabari Zuniga, when he, when he lined up at the, the buck or a rush in position. So you're going to have players that no one's talking about, no one can really see going into the season. And maybe Jonathan Grenard fills into that Ja'Kai Polite role and, and, and produces and replicates a lot of the production that we saw from somebody like Ja'Kai Polite. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Grenard at least has a track record that you can look at and say, hey, if he's that player he was in Grantham's system a couple of years ago, obviously those numbers are going to be extreme, though, again, the the ACC, not exactly the SEC in terms of talent, too. So it's going to be a little bit of a step up. I think guys like Adam Schuler and Kyrie Campbell are some people that you can look at and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, a second year in Grantham's system, they really excelled at times last year. If they can stay healthy, do they have the opportunity? Certainly, there's been a lot of, a lot of buzz around Amari Burns at the linebacker position and then Trey Dean. I mean, you know, yep. with him and with him in the Chauncey Gardner Johnson spot as opposed to being out wide at corner, um, you know, does that give him an opportunity to maybe um, 
showcase some of the skills that one-on-one on the outside when you're getting picked on because you got C.J. Henderson on the other side, you know, some things get exposed. Whereas when you're in the slot and you're able to take advantage of some of your safety skills, um, you know, all of a sudden that starts to be a little bit more prominent and, and you get that sort of, um, you, know, you get a bump because of that. But then, um, you know, the other thing is, you know, you mentioned Marco, but Kyrie Elam, and there are going to be guys who are who are true freshmen who are going to step up this year. And Elam is one of those highly rated guys that was prominent enough that Georgia tried to hire or hired away Florida's DB <laughs> coach to try to help uh, bring him there to Athens. And so, you know, if he's really that good, um, Florida may need him to be that good, honestly, with some of the depth that's that's gone away in the defensive backfield. Um, with steel transferring and some of the other things. And and so it may be a situation where somebody like Elam needs to step up and maybe isn't on the SEC team or one of the SEC teams, but is on like a, a freshman SEC team and really sort of steps into that role. So you, know, you never really know who's going to step up, who hasn't who hasn't done it already. This is sort of a list of these are the guys who last year were either pretty good or really good. And so we expect some of the pretty good guys to take a step forward to be really good. And we expect the elite guys to still be elite. And uh you know, projecting who that's going to be is obviously an inexact science. Yeah, I'll move to the other side of the ball before I move on to some more comments here. For offense, I could see one of the receivers, Grimer or Jefferson, being postseason uh, All-SEC, but uh, I will go offensive line and maybe somebody like Brett Hagee, who we know has a lot of experience, and from when he's on the field, we like what we see from him. He's just – look, his, his, best, his best aspect this season is going to be availability. He needs to be on the field. No, it's a great point, and and certainly I wrote maybe a month ago about the Florida offensive line and Mississippi State's offensive lines and how Hevesy and Mullen always have very good offensive lines and that there was a significant drop-off at Mississippi State last year after they left. And and then you see a significant jump at Florida last year after they arrive. And so, again, you know, some of the guys that were on the uh, on the SEC team last year were not selected early mm-hmm. in the year or were not selected preseason. Some, you know, some of them went pretty high in the draft. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm expecting there to be, be – I mean, you know, maybe not first team, but certainly second yeah. or third team for a couple of those offensive linemen that, you know, you just don't know anything about right now. But certainly if Florida has the year people are expecting where they're a top 10 team, then the offensive line is going to be a big part of that. All right. Slim Gator at South South Life Gold says, I can't I can't pick us right now, but if this O-line is at least serviceable and we are healthy come game day, I'm probably all in by then. Ha ha. So kind of extending the point we just had there. Uh, Donovan German says, uh, Joe Burrow, third team, preseason, all SEC, ha, ha, ha. However, when you compare he and Franks from 2018, they performed very similarly. Um, so he said, except Franks had seven more touchdowns. So I'd give the nod to Franks based on touchdowns. Shows they don't think much of Kellen Mond. And, Will, you and I, we, we about well, a little over a month ago, we had a, kind of our quarterback thing and kind of the rankings of SEC quarterbacks and – you know, if you want to rank Burrow, Franks, or Mon third, I don't think there's you know you you can throw those three much like we were talking about picks earlier. You can throw those three in a half, pick all three out as the third ranked quarterback in the SEC, and you can make a case for each one of those guys there. Uh, but Burrow was placed as third team. But you know, if if Felipe Franks would have been that third team uh, quarterback, I would not have been surprised in the least. No, I mean, I think you can make the case for any of them. But I I think also when you look at Burrow, he threw for, what, about 700 yards more than Franks did last year. Um, Same yards per attempt. He didn't have that seven overtime game. (laughs) <laughs> well, that, is, that, is, that is true that is true which certainly i'm sure padded his touchdown stats but he also ran for more yardage than than franks did so 452 to 350 with the same yards per attempt on on the ground so um you know 
I, I think when you look at it, you say, okay, so Burrow threw some backbreaking interceptions, certainly. And if that continues and he doesn't, and he doesn't uh, tighten that up, then people are going to look at the end of the year and say, Franks was the better player. I also think that, you know, the six interceptions that Franks threw last year is a pretty low percentage on a per throw basis. And Mullen's offense sort of dictates that. But at the same time, there were probably some drops in there that maybe don't get dropped this year. And that percentage creeps up as well. So I think the question that you're asking is, okay, so Franks took a big step from two years ago to last year. Does he have that step in him again? And when people put Burrow at third, what they're saying is in his first year, he was as good as Franks. And so if he can take the same type of step that Franks took in year two, he's going to be significantly better. And, you know, I don't know whether that'll happen. It's certainly something that I think his high school pedigree indicates probably is there somewhere. But, you know, obviously you got Orgeron there and you've got some other things going on that may uh, may prevent him from doing so. But, you know, I think Burrow showed some things last year. He wasn't he wasn't a fantastic quarterback by any means, but his yards above replacement was identical to Frank's. Their stat lines look very very similar, um, you know. And and so if he can take that st- next step forward, I think there's probably more low hanging fruit to improve on Burrow's game than there is with Frank's. But again, I think Mullen does a really good job of protecting his quarterback. So yeah, I think he can go either way. All right, last few thoughts here: uh, the green zone preps. Says uh, Georgia has the upper hand right now. They have out recruited and outperformed us on the field. Only right to be put ahead until Florida beats Georgia on the field. They're the king of the East. Uh, Gator football report. I personally think Mullen beats Smart and Florida wins the East, but I don't want to vote. Uh, I don't want to vote the media got it wrong because how how can we expect them to vote against Georgia until someone proves they've at least closed the gap with them? Gator football report also says as far as snubs, I don't. I really don't see any. Uh, I think Malik Davis and Marco are good enough to be up there, but after the injuries, you can't exactly put them up there. Also think Bernie, Grenard, Grimes, or Jefferson could earn per season all SEC honors, but not preseason. Uh, kind of backing up a lot of what we just said a few minutes ago. Dustin Smith says, did the media get it right? Yes, for now. Will the Gators get second to East? No, I believe the Gators will beat Georgia and take the East. And yes, Franks should have been the third team all SEC and not Joe Burrow. Last couple of thoughts here. Um, the, un- the unholy one says, I think preseason, it is probably the correct pick. However, I ultimately think the media got it wrong. And Christopher Yane says media recently has been right to pick Georgia in the East, but that was when the East was down. I think it will get more difficult now that it seems to be more competitive top to bottom with Florida, Georgia, Missouri sprinkled in with Kentucky, Tennessee, and South Carolina every other year. I got Florida this year. So, it is interesting. Well, I, I do think the SEC East is getting better. Um, it was pretty competitive last year. Uh, I, I thought too, Kentucky taking a big step. They did upset Florida for the first time in forever. Um, Georgia played Kentucky the week after they beat Florida, controlled Kentucky for the most part there. Uh, but you know, the SEC East is getting better. Had a winning record versus the SEC West last year. A lot of that's to, you know determined by matchups there. But uh, you know, last year the East I think was you know I. I, I I think with with Kentucky taking that big step, I do think uh, pretty even last year uh, when you look at it top to bottom with, you know, Alabama and Georgia kind of being pretty equal, uh, Florida beating LSU and Mississippi State out of the West. Uh, But, you know, I think it is a good point that uh, Georgia may, as far as good as they're recruiting, maybe I'm not going to say the rest of the SEC, SEC East is catching up, but it is it is getting better. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where, if you look in the West, I think 
we all expect Alabama to win, but legitimately, if things if things break right, LSU might win, A and M might win, and Auburn might win. I think, regardless of how things break, Mississippi State, Old Miss, and Arkansas probably lose. But if you look in the East, I think if things break right, Florida beats Georgia. I don't see anybody else there who beats them, even if things break right. Unless, I mean, you know, if if Georgia is a mash unit, maybe, but. Um, you know, the other thing sort of working against some of these teams, I think, and it's something that's probably a, an underthought of thing this offseason, is everybody gets two bye weeks. Mm-hmm. And those two bye weeks favor the teams with more talent because, you know, the teams with more talent, and I, I think it favors the teams with more talent because those teams with more talent don't get beat up four weeks in a row and then have to play a, a quality SEC team on the road and all of a sudden they're behind by three touchdowns because they came out flat because they didn't have any energy left. You know, instead they will have had a bye week and they come out and they're and they're ready to go. So I think those extra bye weeks are going to play a role in a way that maybe we don't think they do. Because I looked maybe three or four years ago, I looked at Florida's record coming off a bye week and it was something like they won like 85% of the time and the scores were much, much higher than they normally were. The offense was better. The defense was better. Um, it just made a huge difference having that week off. And we, did, think, we did get to play Georgia for so many years off of a bye week. That helped. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, you know, I, so I, I think that second bye week is going to make a difference. And I think that probably favors Alabama and Georgia. But, uh, you know, again, it, a lot of times it's going to depend on who's injured and who needs to recover. Right. It might end up favoring Florida if you end up with going into a bye week beat up and you're able to recover in time. But hey, um, and Florida, and Florida's got three of them. Yeah, well, and and an ability to regroup after what's going to be a physical game against Miami, even if it's not a close one. I think it'll be it'll be much more physical than opening up against you know Charleston Southern or yeah. North Texas. So, um, so certainly, I think a welcome thing moving that game a week earlier. Um, I think gives them that extra week, and and yeah, I think that extra bye week can make a difference. All right, so we got the media's view of Florida, and I think it's a great time, Will, to ask what is the best-case scenario and worst-case scenario here for Florida uh, going into the 2019 season. Now, I want to try and go in realistic as possible with this and not go overboard uh, one way or another. I think it's safe to say that by Florida being picked in, in the top 10 in all the preseason magazines, being picked second in the SEC East behind Georgia, that you can say best-case scenario is national championship. If you're a top 10 team, best-case scenario realistically is a national championship. You know, Florida, as of now, will only be underdogs at Georgia or at LSU versus Georgia. And as we all know, you can afford a loss somewhere along the way uh, playing in the SEC. You'd possibly have wins versus Miami, Kentucky, Tennessee, Auburn, LSU, Georgia, Missouri, Florida State. And at the end of the year, that would be a very strong resume. But uh, so barring injury, the worst case scenario for me isn't catastrophic. Uh, it would certainly be disappointing, but I don't see a, a four or five win scenario uh, for, for this Gators team here. Three wins uh, are for sure, or, or two wins, you know, UT Martin and, and Towson. Uh, and then taking a look at the next peg of teams, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, Florida State, South Carolina, Mizzou. Florida's winning three of those games at, at least. So, you know, Florida just wins those three, then you're at five and two. Uh, then throw in Miami and Auburn, say they split those. You know, I remember I'm going worst case here. There, I, I, I say they split those there. Um, you know, that's six and four overall is what you have there. Then if you lose to LSU and Georgia because you're not favoring those games, that gets you a six and six record. That's the, the, way I, the, the way I see this absolute worst case scenario playing out. 
I'm in no way picking that, but I can see that as being the worst case. You know, given Mullen's history after having five wins in his first season at Mississippi State, there were six regular season wins in 2011, 2013, and five wins in 2016. Uh, and had to get approval to play in a bowl game that year to get, you know, to get six wins. I think it's safe to say six wins is the floor, and I just don't see getting anywhere close to the worst case scenario, barring injuries piling up. Yeah, I mean, I think Franks is a lot better than those quarterbacks that that Mullen had when he was winning five and six games. I also think that uh, that the talent level at Florida is better, and I think the East is worse than the West was when he was at Mississippi State and putting up those putting up those records. I I think you know we've talked earlier this offseason that the playoffs are sort of the best case scenario where you end up there, mm-hmm. and who knows what happens from there. But um, you know, there's probably about a five to ten percent chance that Florida can make the playoffs, and some of that's based on schedule, and some of that's based on conference. Conference. But yeah, if they beat Georgia, um, you know, you're playing Alabama, you beat Alabama, um, you're, you're, you're going to play for the championship. And that's, that's obviously the best case scenario. I think worst case scenario, you know, you look at Miami, um, if, if they could turn around some of their offensive woes, their defense was very, very good. You look at Auburn, that's always a tough game. I've seen Florida play Auburn in the swamp and I've seen the one game I went to was a walk-off field goal for the Auburn win. LSU, you're in Baton Rouge, and then you got Georgia. So those, like in a in a in a season where the where the, where the season starts to get away from you, I think those are the four you point at. So then you're at eight and four. But then you know Missouri has been a game where they just have really struggled. And if you've already lost those four. And you come out and you maybe beat Vanderbilt at home, but now you go on the road to Missouri late in November. You could see maybe where that would be something that you wouldn't be able to get up for, but you're going to be able to get up for Florida State. So I think the floor is probably seven and five. Um, again, I don't just like you, the people are going to be uh, they're going to say that I've got them at seven and five. And you've got them at six and six after this podcast. So that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. But I, you know, I think seven and five is the absolute floor. I think probably. 11 and one is the ceiling. When you talk about the 12 game regular season, um, I, I think at some point they're going to trip up They yeah. They are not a, at least at this point, it doesn't appear that they're a good enough team to run the table. You know, the question is just going to be, where does that one loss come? And if it comes yeah. like on the road in Baton Rouge, then you come back and you beat Georgia and, you know, each team has one sec loss. You get to go to the sec title game. Yeah. I think that's sort of the season that you might see that, uh, you know, sort of on a best case scenario. Yeah. All right. Best case, worst case scenario there from, from Will and I. Before we wrap up, Will, fall camp will be getting underway soon. Gators coming off of a 10-win, top 10 finish, and some expectations this season. A couple things I'll be looking for early on is how fast the how, how fast the offense will catch on. You know, defense is usually ahead of the offense when camp starts, uh, but with a returning quarterback that should be more familiar with the offense, uh, a bevy of playmakers at receiver and running back around Felipe Franks, the offense should be able to get it together with all the returning production and experience if the offensive line has taken the necessary strides. You know, we all look forward to how the offensive line will look when the season opens. Well, for the entire offense to take the necessary steps, I think the gelling needs to come pretty fast, and that hinges on the offensive line. You know, how long does it take before that unit becomes one, hopefully stays healthy, uh, so the offense can come together and just start building upon a foundation and not have to wait too long and bring the offensive line along. You know, would not, not wait too long for the offensive line to, to, to kind of come together before this before this offensive before this whole offensive unit can come together. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think some of that comes down to injuries, right? That if the guys are if the guys are not on the field during camp, then they can't really build that camaraderie and can't build the continuity that you need for the offensive line. So that's probably the thing I'm going to look at is what's the injury report coming out of fall camp, um, you know? And and certainly you've you've usually got a couple of people who didn't do the right things during the offseason and don't play in the first game. So what does that list look like going into the Miami game um, in terms of guys who are injured and can't play? Um, you know, those are probably the things I'd look for more than anything, anything schematically. I mean, you're, you're not going to hear a whole lot. I would expect yeah. out of fall camp that, that the second unit is struggling or anything like that, but certainly in the spring, the second unit on the offensive line was struggling quite a bit. There was a huge gap between the first unit and the second unit. So, you know, if you mentioned earlier, Heggy, if he can stay healthy, can be a really big, uh, a really big contributor this year, but if he can't stay healthy, then you got to plug somebody in there who's young and inexperienced and, and potentially could be a place that you could take advantage of. So I'm, you know, I think from a skill position on the offensive side of the ball, I mean, if something, if an injury were to happen to P Ryan, you've got some guys behind him. If an injury were to happen to, to one of the wide receivers, you can replace him. So really the places, uh, the injuries on the offensive line, if there are any, are, are what I'm going to sort of be paying attention to. Yeah. Because you're going to be going into fall camp now, you know, without Wardrick Wilson, who's still trying to wait on the visa issue. Uh, Diave Hammond, not on campus, uh, having to go to Juca route, Noah Banks and his health situation, still trying to figure uh, all that out. So you know, you'll have William Harad, Michael Tarquin, um, you know, guys who didn't play a lot last year, Griffin McDowell, Kingsley Aguakin, who went through spring. Uh, it's all good about him. Ethan White, who's you know going through the the program now. There's so many names uh, that we do know, but uh, you know, by, by, behind those guys uh, and the names I just listed here, guys who didn't make it to campus. And guys who we haven't seen a whole lot from, and they're going to be instrumental. And, and I, I know we've talked about this offensive line uh, ad nauseum, and and how how you know the the experience or lack of experience there. Uh, but you know, to start, I, I think Florida has a good you know five six guys they can start with. But it really is going to be instrumental uh, of picking out the guys behind the behind those five and six. Yeah, well, and that's always the case, right? I mean, you're always going to have injuries throughout the year. The question is who can step in. Florida remarkably didn't have a whole lot of injuries on the offensive line last year. Uh, if you look in 2017, I mean, they had Jawan Taylor over at left tackle and then had uh, Martez Ivy shifted into guard um, towards the end of the year just because of the the mash unit the, that the offensive line and really the entire team had become. And you can attribute some of that to the to the change from Savage, from whoever was doing strength and conditioning before that. But um, I don't think you can attribute all of that. I mean, and I'm not expecting it to swing in the other direction where all yeah. of a sudden, you know, you've got all sorts of injuries. But there is a regression to the mean, right, where you're just going to have to deal with a few. And you hope that they don't happen in fall camp. You hope that the injuries that you deal with are relatively minor, that they're ankle sprains, that they're, you know, separated shoulders, things like that, as opposed to ACLs and Achilles and, and injuries like that, that put a guy out for the entire year and really impact your depth. But, um, you know, I, again, I, I think you usually have people who get, you get a few dings in fall camp. You hope that they're at the right spot just so that you can, you have a guy behind them that you could replace them, but it's something we got to keep an eye on. And really, I think sort of the thing that maybe says something about where the team will be coming into coming in against Miami. 
Yeah, Will, and you alluded to this earlier, and we'll go over to the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, how do the transfers and injuries uh, play a part in, in young guys getting more playing time uh, with the departures of, of Chris Steele and Brian Edwards? You know, Kyrie Elam, Chester Kimbrough, Jaden Hill uh, are going to get some time. You know, how quickly can uh, they supplant, supplant themselves behind C.J. Henderson and Marco Wilson? Uh, do they play it safe with Marco Wilson still and, and let one of those guys get more time throughout fall camp, you know, sticking with the secondary? Uh, does Hill or Kimbrough show enough to maybe also back up Dean at star? And would that allow, you know, Huggins to move to move to safety if they if they need there, if they feel like he's he's in need there? You know, there's so many questions in how in how safety shakes out that uh, you've got some young guys coming in who are who are pretty versatile back there in that secondary. Uh, and you know, I, I want to see kind of how that shakes out through, throughout fall camp. And also with the departures of Kylan Johnson and Rashad Jackson uh, to go along with the recent injury to the younger uh, David Reese, you and I, you talk behind the scenes over the weekend about this, you know, linebacker linebacker has all of a sudden has some depth, depth questions. Now, you know, Reese was used more in the spring as an edge rusher, but with the departures of Jackson and Johnson, I could see where he may have gotten pushed back to linebacker because of those two, those two players leaving some holes there. So you'll have Tyron Hopper coming in and, and he'll get plenty of chances to come in and prove himself this fall. Uh, probably would, would have been given plenty of chances anyway, but now more of a need than we thought uh, coming out of spring when you know, Reese, like I said, Reese maybe would have gotten – he's a versatile guy as well – probably would have gotten maybe taken away from that rush-in spot. The Abate maybe getting more playing time there and moving Reese back to linebacker with the departures of uh, Johnson and Jackson. Yeah, well, and this is where you're going to also need to see guys like C.J. McWilliams and Donovan Steiner and and guys like that sort of take the next step, right? That that there were areas where they were clearly limited last year, and and you're going to have to see them progress. Um, because if I'm Miami, I look at the depth chart and go, all right, I'm going four wide. Like, <laughs> let's see if I can block them. If I can block them, then it's a long day because there are guys out there who are inexperienced. There are guys out there who you could target last year. And the question is, can you target them this year? And if you can target them this year, then the secondary is going to struggle because, um, you know, they're, you know, Chris Steele was somebody that they were really relying on to be, to be, you know, likely a starter, at least a, a starter in their nickel defense. And then, you know, you've had some injuries and some other things as well. And so, uh, I, I think, um, I think there are going to be some areas that you can target that um, there's going to need to be some guys who step in and maybe it's Elam, maybe it's Steiner, maybe it's McWilliams, but somebody's going to have to step in and fill those roles and really, and really show an improvement over the off season. And that's one of the, that's one of the fun parts, right? Is that there are going to be guys who spent time in the weight room, who spent time in the film room and step up this year that maybe we don't expect. And, and I'm expecting to see that because of the way that um, the Florida staff is coached, the, you know, the, the ability to take that defense and the offense and improve them from year one to year two, isn't a coincidence. It was because of the way they're able to sort of convey the concepts to the players and things start to slow down. And I think you saw that in the last three or four games of the year where some of those concepts started to slow down for some of those guys. And if that continues into this year, I think some of the guys that maybe we thought were a weaker link might be a strong point for the defense this year. If Nikosi Perry is uh, as accurate as he was last year, I hope Miami goes four wide. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be Tate Martell, right? Tate Martell, is he going to be a starting quarterback? I have no idea. I guess there's some, there's some stuff out there when Nikosi Perry's off-field problems may, may come into play here, and uh, maybe maybe Martell is the guy. Uh, I don't know. You know, that's another fall camp storyline for another team, of course, we'll be following uh, as well in about a month, a month and two days. we got kickoff. We're getting there, man. I, I'm looking. I really hope they start Martell because I've always wanted to see somebody um, play quarterback who's who's shorter than you, Dave. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was I taller than Johnny Manziel? I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not comparing him to Johnny Manziel, but. Uh. <laughs> I well, if he, if he if we're comparing him to Johnny Manziel, I think uh, I think we're going to be unhappy come August. But hey, Florida beat Manziel when he yeah. was in his go. first year, so uh, yes. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think I think Miami's got some more questions than Florida does going into that game, but certainly coming out of the fall camp, um, you know, based on the injury situation and what happens to some of these true freshmen who are coming in, we can, uh, you know, we, we can expect to see a, uh, a – I hope that we'll see some answers coming out in that game against Miami. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another game with 40-plus points on the board. We'll take it. Um before we wrap up here, a couple quick hits here. Friday Night Lights, Will, this uh, Friday night. Uh, 12 of 18 commits will be on campus for the Gators. Uh, so, you know, hopefully they'll be working on uh, getting some of those top 2020 targets that are still out there that will also be in attendance, like uh, running back Kevon Lee, cornerback Jacquez Robinson, and offensive tackle Marcus Dumerville. Uh, but this camp is more for really getting those uh, 2021 class and, and beyond guys on campus, uh, getting yourself familiar with them. A quarterback target out of Georgia, Carlos Del Rio, will be on campus, and there's a thought he may be on commit watch this weekend. Former wide receiver commit Javante Rucker will also be in attendance. Uh, all these recruits will get to work out in front of the coaches, uh, see the newly renovated locker room that the uh, that the Gators unveiled last week. So not necessarily much news going into the event, except for the fact that he's going to be there. But, Will, it is a chance to make an impression on recruits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is something that – so there's two things. One is Florida already has 18 commits this year. They only had, I think, 10 last year going into Friday Night Lights. And then I had written something last year about how, how many recruits actually commit between July 15th to August 31st. And the average well, – that was, that was popular. Nah, well, you know, <laughs> not much of the stuff I write about recruiting is popular these days, but um, it was like two and a half recruits uh, over the last 10 years, the number of guys who commit after Friday Night Lights in sort of that time frame. So, and they're usually, you know, the average star rating is like 3.6. So usually they get sort of a four star and a three star, um, you know, maybe they add another one. Um, somewhere in there, but it's, it's a, it's a relationship building thing. It's a lot like the ribs and the barbecue that they do where it's about building a relationship. It's not necessarily about closing the deal. Um, and, and so I think the strong finish that we saw last year was probably related to Friday night lights. It's probably also related to the barbecue um, and, and building that sort of relationship. And, you know, Mullen's just a different recruiter than smart, right? I mean, smart is, is, very clearly has a strategy that he thinks works. Um, Mullen has a different strategy and, you know, we're, we're going to have to see how that plays out over the next three or four years. But um, I wouldn't expect seven guys to commit coming out of Friday night lights. This is really an opportunity to, um, to evaluate. It's an opportunity to build relationships. It's an opportunity to really sort of look at the three or four guys probably that you want to close on late who maybe aren't even making a decision until February or at least until December. Um, so, you know, it's just a way to, to, again, sort of put your best foot forward. And then for 2021, it's an opportunity to start building momentum now, especially, you know, we, we talked, last year extensively that the 2018 success in the field was not really for the 2019 class it was for the 2020 class same thing right you have friday night lights then cascades into an opening win over miami you beat florida state at the end of the year and all of a sudden like the relationships that you built with those guys for 2021 really should start to take hold because what you've said is going to happen has started to happen right you're mm. you're dominating your in-state rivals and if they can beat Georgia this year, then that sort of puts you at a, point, at a place where you can start really selling the vision you've been trying to sell since the start and can really start bringing that momentum forward. 
And as far as the current commits that will be on campus for Friday Night Lights, it'll be quarterback Anthony Richardson, wide receiver Leonard Rennell, Manuel, uh, wide receiver Jaquavion Frazier's, uh, tight end Jonathan Odom, offensive lineman Richie Leonard, offensive tackle Gerald Mincy, defensive tackle Gervin Dexter, linebacker Derek Wingo, uh, safety Rashad Torrance, safety Traveris Johnson, cornerback Avery Helm, and Jahiri Rogers, uh, the most recent commit uh, out of Texas. So, Will, it is interesting. Uh, both commits from Texas, both cornerbacks, will be taking the trip from Texas to Gainesville. Yeah, well, it's interesting that they, they've at least come a little bit closer to the East Coast with <laughs> some of the recruiting that they've been doing recently. But, um, you know, these are all very important guys. I mean, if you look at the teams that are that are in front of them for the 2020 class, um, Miami has 22 commits, so, so a lower average star ranking. Um, same thing with Michigan has 22 commits with a lower average star ranking, and then Notre Dame is just slightly higher. So, you know, Florida's at ninth right now, but there's an opportunity to jump those three. The other thing is with some of the uh, – I think you had tweeted about that some of the counters that mm. are associated with the guys who didn't who, – who have decided to go the junior college route, um, those counters come back. So it's conceivable that Florida could sign more than 25. And so from a points total – be much higher ranked than they might otherwise. And, and that's an important thing just because in terms of the um, percentage of guys who tend to pan out, right? That if you've mm-hmm. got 27 or like the numbers are important. If you got 27 or 28 guys that you bring in and half of them turn into contributors, well, now you got 14 guys contributing. Whereas if you only bring in 22 and half of the guys turn into contributors, you got 11 and those three players don't sound like a lot, but it's a lot over a four year cycle, right? That's, that's another 12 guys who are contributing over those, over those four years. So Florida should have an opportunity to drive their point total up higher, even if their average score is a little bit lower than some of those other teams. Yeah. So it'd be good to see all the current Gator commits all in Gainesville and hitting it up uh, with the uh, 2020, 2021 and beyond kids that'll be camping Friday night in Gainesville. And before we go, quick hit on some secondary or uh, kind of recruiting staff updates here, hopefully announced soon. If it will be announced, as many of you saw, I was sharing some Twitter profiles of a, of a secondary uh, recruiting staff on Sunday. Uh, thanks to listener Craig Hires for sending me stuff on this. And uh, Chase Clark, Billy Homer, and David Cooper all updated their Twitter profiles uh, to UF Graphics, uh, to Florida Graphics here. So the, the most notable of these three is Chase Clark, who held the position of director of recruiting at UAB after interning in Seattle with the Seahawks in 2017 and four years at Alabama before that as a player personnel staffer. So I think sends a kind of good sign there, Will, if you can uh, be with Nick Saban for four years uh, in that player personnel staff room uh, that they put together. You know, we'll see if and when Florida announces these hires. Don't really know much about these guys. Uh, David Cooper told me yesterday he's coached high school ball in Atlanta, the Citadel, and Texas A&M. His little brother, Robert Cooper, starts at defensive tackle for Florida State. So fun little sibling rivalry uh, will be coming about there. And so, uh, you know, like I said, we'll see if and when these are announced. Don't, you know, don't usually make a, a big announcements for the kind of the secondary and recruiting staff hires. Uh, but good to know, it looks like these hires are being made and, and the organization uh, will be coming, you know, behind the scenes there uh, on this recruiting staff uh, and the office is getting filled. Yeah, I mean, that's an important part. I mean, obviously, recruiting is a lifeblood of your program. And if you can add good people there and just add numbers, it makes a difference. And, and uh, you know, Florida is is recruiting at a, at a good level right now. I don't know if they're recruiting at an elite level. And so anybody that they can bring in to help with that is, is certainly a welcome addition. And, and you expect that the evaluation of the coaches, um, particularly a couple years in, um, is is something that Mullen now is comfortable with and and knows where he needs to add people to to take the next step. 
Yeah, it just kind of comes off the heels of the Otis Yelverton and Chuck Cantor not being on staff anymore. And uh, some stuff sent my way about Chase Clark. You know, he was with that UAB program who had to build from scratch after having their football program taken away. Uh, they say he's a grinder and he will work his tail off. So uh, welcome, welcome news there uh, for behind the scenes uh, of Gator football. Will, reading reaction, what you got coming up there, man? Yeah, man, I got something coming up this week, hopefully, about Franks and sort of the the differences in the film that I'm seeing from early in the year to late in the year in 2018. And, you know, we talked a little bit about um, about his accuracy, especially on the deep ball over the last four games versus the first the first eight or nine. And and I sort of went back and looked at some of those early games against Tennessee and what I saw in some of the late games. So I'll be looking at that over the next week. And uh, that's what's coming. Man, you mentioned that Tennessee game that that uh, rollout to, to Swain pass that i'll tell you that uh that play gets me every time that was a that was just an awesome play well it was great because swain was running right at me so yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then there's nothing better to be in the opposing stadium when they all go quiet because they had been giving us crap (laughs) all afternoon as we were walking around the uh walking around knoxville and then uh they were they were not real happy with us while we were sitting in the stands but uh they should be be used to it by now (laughs) Uh, you know they they still uh they still enjoy talking crap until it, you know they're down twenty eight nothing or whatever it was. So okay, that's been a popular question on Twitter lately. So before we sign off here, is Tennessee still a rival? I mean, they are to me. And me too. Okay. Right? I mean, you can't possibly like you know you got the nine eleven game that got moved back, yep. Yep. and then you've got the Peyton Manning stuff. I mean, my I grew up in Indianapolis, and I can't root for the Colts just because Peyton Manning was the quarterback. Um, you know, th- there's that sort of. Um, there's enough heartbreak associated with it, but also enough bragging rights that, that they're a rival. And, and uh, I mean, we had that same winning, we had a same kind of similar winning streak under Spurrier and Zook and Meyer where, you know, we beat George, what Georgia only beat Florida with three years out of what 18 or something like that. That game was still a rivalry game just because the, you know, the, the uh, getting our teeth kicked in in the eighties and, and before that versus Georgia. But so I, I don't think recent trends in, in a, in a rivalry game doesn't, you know, dust like I said, I'm still calling it a rivalry. I don't think recent trends in a in a game series take it away from being a rival. I mean, it's uh it's just uh, I think once it once it's built up to be a rival, it kind of st- it, it kind of stays that way for for a lot of fans. Yeah, I mean, I understand why somebody who's 22 years old yeah would think that LSU is a is a much stronger rival than Tennessee, right? I mean, Florida has just beat this yeah. tar out of Tennessee just about every year. Yeah. And I will admit, I think LSU has taken over Tennessee for me. Well, I mean, I, I yeah. think ten, LSU is the fulcrum, right? LSU tells you how you're – if you lose that first game against Tennessee, which we never do, um, you know, it, it, it tells you something about your team, but there's time to recover. The yeah. the LSU game, if you lose that game, really sort of tells you where you're at in the SEC and really sort of makes a determination for your entire year. So, so I understand that, especially because they haven't – you know, they weren't the permanent cross-rival – before they split into divisions. And so you didn't have LSU every year like you do now. And so, it, I mean, or at least it wasn't the focus, right? It wasn't one of those things where it was, you know, LSU, oh, we get LSU this year and Georgia gets who? <laughs> like, you know, and you sort of have that, that the, the cross rivalry, I do think makes a difference in terms of them being in the West and us being in the East. I, I think that does sort of add something to it. And then, you know, all the ridiculous fake field goals and fake punts and, and, and all the games that go down to the wire. I mean, at some point you just go, Hey, I want to be at that game. Cause I know it's going to be a ridiculous finish. And, you know, there hasn't really been a Tennessee game. That's been a ridiculous. I mean, there've been a couple, but even those, those weren't really 
years where uh, the Franks, the Franks bomb wasn't something where Florida really went anywhere that year. So, um, but you know, I, Going to Knoxville, I think, sort of reignited it for me a little bit. Yeah, like, you walk around in a, in a rival uh, in a rival stadium, and you and you get get stuff thrown at you and, <laughs> and stuff yelled at you. And you decide, eh, all right, these guys are still rivals. I mean, cause, because you go you go look at it for Florida, Tennessee. Yeah, Florida's win most of them, winning winning most of them. But like you said, you go Greer to Callaway, the bomb to to Cleveland, um, the ugly. Where Treon Harris comes off the bench and and, and wins an ugly ten to nine game in Knoxville. I mean that game, you know, oh, wow, that game was absolutely filthy, ugly. Uh, but Florida some found, found a way to win. But you know, it also I think you know, how competitive are the games uh, as well. So I think that you just because Florida won doesn't mean uh, I didn't you know, and Florida has been winning doesn't mean I didn't enjoy those wins uh, any, any more or any less. And it's one of those things where like Tennessee isn't high on the list of teams that like if I if you were to tell me 2019, who are the games where you absolutely just are going to hate losing? I mean, Georgia's is up at the top of the list. Right. But Georgia's is up at the top of the list because they're the game where if you win that game against Georgia, it means your team's playing for a title. Yeah. Right? And so that's the game you point to. Um, Florida State was sort of that beacon over the last four or five years where under Jimbo, they were winning national titles. So you look at that and say, okay, that's a hump we need to get over. Tennessee hasn't really been a hump. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, until they get to a point where they're a hump, I think you say, okay, that's one where you, you expect the win. You put a check mark there. And until they come back and win on a more regular basis, that's not something at the beginning of the year, I'm going to say, okay, that's one where I'm like circling on the calendar. Like I, and I think that's what people are saying, right? Nobody's circling the Tennessee game on the calendar and saying, this is where the, se- this is a make or break game for the season. Now, obviously if you lose it, maybe it's a break game for the season, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not going to make your season. No one's going to, no one's going to pat you on the back and say, Ooh, you guys beat Tennessee. See, you're really yeah. good. They're gonna say you took care of business, and so um, I think maybe that's where some of the rivalry has been lost. But um, I gotta be honest, man, I I still would would cringe <laughs> if we lose to Tennessee and cringe every time we do. And you know, it's it's uh, I still hate them. Yes, me too, me too. And, and you know, oh. you can hate six teams. Like I have no problem. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, Georgia, FSU are up there, and then there's a list of teams. Kind of put put behind that. They're uh, like they're all kind of equal. Well, this year we get to play them all. So that's right. That's right. Yeah, because Auburn used to be old school rivalry. Miami old school rivalry. Get to play both of those games. So yeah. See yeah, LSU, Florida State, and Georgia. Man, it's mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's a loaded one this year for rivals. And it should be fun. Uh, as I said, Gators picked East, picked second in the SEC East behind Georgia, uh, coming off SEC Media Days, and what should be a fun season. Uh, for the Gators. That's Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site readandreaction.com. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.